Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. We're in the middle of a series on worldview, those decisive, very deep insights that we have as far as where do we come from? Where are we going? What are we supposed to do here? What is truth? Worldview is shared by everyone, but it's not conscious by most. And I need to state right at the top of the show today, for any parent or catechist, that moral behavior, which everyone is so concerned about today for our youth, Moral behavior is much more influenced by worldview than by Christian doctrine. And I know that might sound shocking, but just just think for a moment, the amount of effort that goes into catechesis and all the work in CCD, all the work in homeschooling, all the work by Catholic schools to convey doctrine. Now, if you've been listening to me more than two weeks, you know that I very much appreciate Christian doctrine and believe we should teach it to our children. But research, hardcore research by the Barna Organization has shown that moral behavior, which parents are so concerned about today, is more influenced by worldview than by all that teaching on doctrinal beliefs. So I asked the question, How much effort do you, mom and dad, do you, catechist, do you, Catholic school teacher, how much effort do you put into worldview in contrast to teaching other Catholic truths? Is it at least equal or even more so? I doubt it. It's kind of a blind side. So today we're hitting the second question on worldview, but just to back up a second, The primary question, the foundational question, the first question in worldview is this, where did I come from? There's no worldview without a clear answer to this first question. And I shared with you last week, theistic evolution, as it's taught today, although it is permissible for Catholics to believe it, it's incapable of keeping kids Catholic in today's world. And right along with that, simply declaring there's no conflict between faith and true science is a woefully inadequate statement in today's world. You need to start defining what exactly do you mean by true science and contrast that with what the kids are actually being taught in school, including Catholic schools. And I want to repeat a promise that I made last uh, episode when we hit that first question, where did I come from? I'm going to have a special radio show at the end of this series where I promise to share parental resources for teaching intelligent design to all ages, starting, say, from about a four-year-old to a child of yours who may have a Ph.D. or two. Okay, we're going to have the whole gamut, and that will be right after this series on worldview. But today we're going to hit that second question, which stems really from the first question. These two are where we get our bearings in life from. And the second question is simply this, 
where are we going? Okay, last time, where did we come from? Today, where are we going? And I'm speaking of particularly the eternal state. I'm not trying to complicate this, so I am not really referring to, say, if uh, I was going to be uh, hit by a tractor trailer trying to go home this afternoon and I died. I'm not referring to what happened. Where do I go immediately after that? I'm talking about where do I go for eternity? What is my eternal state like? And specifically, as a Christian, we're telling people that the reward of being faithful in this life is heaven. Well, what exactly is that? And I am basically stating today that many, if not most, of Catholic youth and adults have a very foggy idea of what that is. And if this is causing us to have a real orientation in life, where do we come from? Where are we going? And if it's a little foggy or hazy in our minds, well, then should we be surprised that we have a confused lifestyle? Again, that important section from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 282, 282, says this, where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin? What is our end? These two questions, the first about the origin and the second about the end, are inseparable. They are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. And that last sentence is almost a description of worldview, particularly how it impacts daily life. They are decisive. The answer to these two questions are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions, and that includes our moral actions. Now, I mentioned that I thought there was great fog in the minds of Christians about the answer to question number two. What's in our minds? Well, a lot of people have this notion, thanks to the King James Version, that we have a heavenly mansion, according to St. John's Gospel, chapter 14. And in that mansion, we are going to have an eternal existence of our soul, but it's something kind of like a disembodied eternal state. And of course, a uh, very common characterization will be playing a harp along with our non-bodily soul existence in our heavenly mansion. But I need to mention that a disembodied eternal state, and I'm talking about when I say eternal state, this is after the second coming of Christ, this is after the world in this present age, a disembodied eternal state has absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, to do with Christianity. It is a non-Christian concept. It's very compatible with Platonism, Eastern mysticism, and Egyptian religion, and many other pagan religions. It has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity, and yet Christians, including some of our religious leaders, and I'm talking about both Protestant and Catholic, are very fuzzy when it comes to what is that eternal state going to be like. Now, let's go talk to a teenager. Let's say a 17-year-old and, you know, 
got his driver's license, has his smartphone, has his social friends, can go to the mall, enjoy ball games and everything else. And I come along and say, now, I want you to go contrary to your peer group, contrary to all the junk coming across your smartphone, contrary to the American culture. I want you to live as a faithful Catholic in today's world. And as a result, you're going to get an Elvis-like mansion in the sky for eternity, and you'll have your soul to float around up there, and it's just going to be absolutely wonderful. And he's going to go, uh-huh. I remember a cartoon that's never left my mind. I think it was in The New Yorker. It showed two guys on a cloud with kind of a translucent bodies, in other words, a, a, a disembodied state. And one guy is saying to the other guy, I wish I had brought a magazine. In other words, boring. And, and, and if that's the expectation, and maybe I've overplayed it a little bit, but I don't really think I have. I, I, I think priests and parents and catechists and youth leaders would be shocked if they investigated and maybe came up with a very simple multiple choice question uh, for their young people about the eternal state. I think they'd be shocked as far as what the beliefs are. So I'm going to just share with you three things to get across to your children. And again, the first question is, where do we come from? That's foundational. That was our last episode, 197. Don't skip that episode, because without the foundation, you build with question number two. You're building on nothing. Okay, you need question number one. Question number two is, where are we going? Three things you need to know. All right. Number one in the eternal state. I'm not talking about, again, if I would die today, what would happen between now and the second coming of Christ. I'm talking about the eternal state of things. We will have new bodies. We will not be disembodied souls floating around heaven. We will have new bodies just like Jesus's resurrected body. And what was that like? Well, he took Sunday afternoon walks down the Emmaus Road. He built a fire on a beach and cooked fish. He allowed Thomas to touch his bodies as, you know, I'm not a ghost. And there was nothing in his tomb but burial clothes. We call that the shroud. But there was no skeleton because the old body was taken and transformed into not a soulless, disembodied existence, but a real, new, tangible body. That's why we confess every week, I believe in the resurrection of the body, but do we really? At heart, we're Greeks. We think that uh, tangible, physical things are evil, and the spiritual world, the real spiritual world, is non-material, doesn't have anything to do with the body. So, This is one of the most fundamental truths of Christianity is the resurrection, not of the soul, the resurrection of the body. And I just throw out a question because there's a lot of enthusiasm for teaching young people theology of the body. And there's nothing wrong with teaching young people theology of the body, but how many of the hundreds, if not thousands, of young people Catholic young people in today's world who have been taught the theology of the body and yet have an unclear view of the resurrection of the body, which is first base if you're playing baseball with theology of the body. This is the foundational view. So we don't want to skip this, okay? So number one, 
to teach young people where we are going, you need to emphasize with clarity that we will have new bodies. And when we talk about the resurrection, be very clear, we're not just talking about the resurrection of the soul, but the resurrection of the body. And that's why we take such careful, dignified care of a human body after death, because that's in hope of the resurrection. All right, number two, and this might shake people up a little bit, so I hope you're sitting down. And and before you turn the radio off, let me explain. But number two, in the eternal state, that's the new final age of things, we will not be up there in heaven. (gasps) What are you talking about? Every fourth hymn talks about one of the golden streets or golden mansions or being up there in bliss in heaven for eternity, okay? Now, again, I'm not talking about what would happen if I died today between that point of time and the second coming of Christ. I'm talking about the final age after Christ's second coming. We will not be up there in heaven, okay? And there's two ways to show you this that are quite simple, but you you need to latch on to these. Number one is section 1025 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 1025. And it simply says this, but it's quite profound. To live in heaven is to be with Christ. That is not an accidental phrase, okay? Let me state that again, because this is foundational, and there's a lot of foggy thinking on this. Section 1025, to live in heaven is to be with Christ. All right, so heavenly life is with Christ, okay? Now, we're talking about the eternal state of things, not Uh, if I would die today until the second coming of Christ. But after the second coming of Christ, where is Jesus? Where is he? You turn to the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There's not too mistaking the fact that Jesus Christ is on earth. It's finally here what we've been praying for practically every day of our life. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven coming to earth. The king comes to dwell on earth. And if heaven is to be with Christ and Christ is on earth, where are we going for our eternal state? Is it going to be up there? Or is it going to be on earth? And somebody might say, and this is a good time to bring it up, but what about those mansions in the sky that Jesus promises us? That's from John chapter 14 and verse 2. And I'm going to read from the King James Version because Catholics may not know this. This is where it comes from in popular culture. Jesus says, and again, according to the King James in my father's house are many mansions. Okay, that's where it comes from. Now, where did the King James get that? 
Well, the King James Version got it from William Tyndale and his translation of the New Testament. Okay, so King James got it from Tyndale. Where did Tyndale get it from? The Tyndale got it from the Vulgate, the Catholic New Testament in Latin. And the Latin word used at John 14.2 was, and pardon my Latin if this is off, but mansiones. It's, it's the word that we get the English word mansions from. But hear this. The English, the Latin, and whatever translations around, the original language that this was recorded in by St. John was Greek. And in Greek, it's the noun moni, which simply means dwelling place, or the related verb meno, which means to dwell. It's, <laughs> this is like thinking um, our eternal state with Jesus being in this uh, glitzy heavenly mansion, okay, compare it to a, uh, a, a brand new moonshot from the Cape. These are very just tremendous things. I was there for the very first moonshot. It was definitely a sight to behold. But imagine being down there for a brand new moonshot and boom, this huge rocket takes off for the moon and ends up landing in Brooklyn. That is what you're teaching people by saying you're going to live in a glitzy mansion up there somewhere floating around without a body. That is not Christianity as well. Here it is, and this is one commentator put it in a sentence so well. Heaven, the Father's house, is not so much a place as the divine communion of life and love in which we share through the glorified humanity of Jesus. And shock of all shocks, heaven has a foretaste in your Christian life, even now it should, because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And simply in the eternal existence, when we'll have new bodies, just like Jesus has a new body, when we'll be on earth, not up there, and our communion, which we share with Jesus now, will be intensified to a degree beyond which uh, I don't have the remotest vocabulary to describe, but I'll give you a good shot at it. And when you're talking about interpreting scripture, if you can find an author who talks about a similar topic and one might be a little clearer than the other, and it's the same author, the same words, uh, then you might use the clearer passage to interpret the unclear passage. So what we are trying to do is get away from the King James, the Tyndale, and the Latin, and go right back to the Greek, but we don't know Greek. So let's just turn to Revelation 21.3 in the English. And remember, this is written by St. John, the same man who wrote John chapter 14, and we read this in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him. Why did I compare a majestic rocket launch to the moon that dysfunctionally landed in Brooklyn to this whole topic? It's this. 
thinking you have a cheesy mansion compared to a union of incredible intensity with God himself. I mean, there is absolutely no no comparison between mansions and golden streets and dwelling in the presence of God Almighty. That's what he's talking about. Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. This is from the second to last chapter of the Bible. This is the windup of that all is leading to, and we're leading kids to some mansion in the sky. We're totally missed the target. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him. In the Old Testament, there was the tabernacle. And tabernacle simply means dwelling place. And the idea that God lived in the tabernacle, dwelt his presence, his holy presence, the Shekinah glory was in the tabernacle. Well, (laughs) that was just a preview of the coming Christ. And then we read in the first chapter of St. John, behold, God has come to dwell with his people. That's the incarnation. And he was here for three years. And then he says, don't worry. I'm Yes, I'm going to leave you, but don't worry, John 14. I'm going to come back and have a dwelling place with you. I'm going to have a life with you and a presence with you and an intensity of God himself in your life and surrounding your life and filling your world and all God can say in the next verse of Revelation 21, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Um, This isn't it. And this world is filled with a lot of pain, but we have something to look forward to. And it's not a kind of mansion where our soul can live up there forever. No. It's a dwelling with God himself on this earth. So one, we'll have new bodies. Two, in the final age, we will not be up there in heaven. The idea is heaven comes to earth in the presence of Jesus Christ who dwells with us. And then number three, there will be a new earth. it's somehow been going to be remade or renewed. We don't know exactly how, but there are four chapters of the Bible you can turn to to learn about this. The primary place is Isaiah 65 and 66, and uh, the second one is Revelation 21 and 22, and it speaks about a new earth, uh, new heavens and a new earth, a new universe. Here's just a few things we will enjoy in that situation. There will be animals. If you're an animal lover, you're in luck. There's going to be animals. And not only that, there's going to be harmony between all the species of animals. Hear this. There will be houses built. There is going to be work but non-frustrating work, very rewarding non-frustrating work. This is how Isaiah puts it. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the voice of weeping shall be heard no more, nor the voice of crying. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them, 
and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's going to be trees on the new earth and fruit. There's going to be cities, nations, and rulers. Uh, there's going to be several no's, no locks, no crime, no sickness, no sorrow, no death, no pain, no war, no alcoholism, but lots of good wine. And especially, there will be a recognizable, eternal fellowship in real bodies on a real new earth with the fullness of Christ, with all of our family members of past generations who have died in the faith. Our first pope, Peter, said this in his second epistle, chapter 3 and verse 13. We, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth. And that, he's using the words of Isaiah. And I need to ask you this. Are we really looking for this new earth like St. Peter was looking for in the first century? He could give his life to be crucified upside down because he knew what was coming. He was giving up his body. He's going to get a new one, not a soul floating around a cloud. He's going to get a new body on a new earth in a presence with a glorified Christ. Or are we teaching our children to believe in some kind of disembodied state somewhere up there existence that is really not much of attraction when compared to a lot of things today? Parents, remember my insight that I gave you at the top of the show? that moral behavior, according to contemporary research, is much more influenced by worldview than by Christian doctrinal beliefs. Now, we're, we want both, but worldview is being neglected. And George Bonner has discovered that if you have a Christian worldview, you know where you came from, really, and know really where you're going. A young person is 31 times less likely to accept cohabitation, which is plaguing Christian youth today, and there's no candidate for political office that can do the same as worldview in changing moral outlook. There's no new shiny expensive religious book you can buy for your youth that can compare to teaching worldview, and there's no chastity speaker that can do the same as worldview. Hey, I believe in voting in elections. I believe in giving good books to our children. I believe in chastity speakers, but I believe even more in teaching worldview. Be diligent in teaching your children the answer to the question, where am I going? I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 198 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.